Welcome to the Transformative Principle Podcast. This is your host, Eric Mikkelke, and joining us today from Melbourne, Australia, Mr. James Anderson. Welcome. Thanks, Eric. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Yeah, it took us a while. We had some time zone issues where we had a, a day booked and you emailed me that it was like, what, five in the morning your time or something on a Sunday? Yeah, so a little bit inconvenient, but we're here now, so it's <laughs> yeah. great to be talking. Yeah, thank you for making the effort. It's just hard when you're literally halfway across the world uh, to agree on a time that works for everybody. So I'm glad we could make it work. And I wanted to kick off the the conversation today, James, with the topic of learnership. That's your go-to, your area of expertise. But I, I wanted to start with asking, what is that word, learnership? Yeah, learnership's a word I made up but it brings together the idea of learners and craftsmanship. So think of something that you consider done skillfully. Maybe it's karate or cooking or gymnastics or something like that. And take that idea of craftsmanship and put it together with learning. And that's what you get. Learnership is the skill of learning. And I think we've been in education globally, I think for the last 15 or so years, we've been talking a lot about the skill of teaching and what teachers do in classroom and the impact teachers have, this looks at the other side of the equation. Learnership is about what learners do in the classroom. And the idea is to teach students how to be better learners, to get better at getting better. And I think it's a little bit of a fresh air, breath of fresh air for a lot of people. Yeah, I know that there's many a teacher, and I don't know how different the systems look in Australia, but it's a common occurrence to walk in a classroom and see a teacher working harder than the students and a Uh, teacher teaching as hard as they can every trick in the book and almost our saying here is you can't make a horse drink even if you lead him to water and it's like what can you do with students that really just sometimes or oftentimes feel like they don't want to learn so that's kind of nice it's pretty rare that a teacher would think it's not just on me. If they didn't get it, it's because I didn't teach it. But really, there's a lot more to that. So how did you get into this topic? Because you were a teacher and then you worked in some different projects and became a consultant. But how did you get to this focus of learning instead of teaching? Yeah, look, it's been an interesting journey. I started with Art Costa and Benicalic's Habits of Mind. I was sort of looking at those ideas and asking how can we help students engage with the habits of mind more effectively so they could be better problem solvers. I did a uh, national research project here in Australia where I led that work around habits of mind. And what we discovered was that the habits of mind only really had an impact when we started with a growth mindset, Carol Dweck's work. And so I got deep into Carol Dweck's work and sort of how do we help students understand themselves as learners? And from there, what we realized was that, all right, the habits of mind were like the actions that you take in the moment of problem solving. And Carol Dweck's work was the understanding that you're capable of learning. But there was a third part missing, which was Anders Ericsson's work. You might know Anders Ericsson's work from the 10,000 hour rule of deliberate practice, those sort of ideas. And when we put that together, when we said we use growth mindset as a base, and said growth mindset's the understanding you're capable of learning, but it's not the growth. All right, a growth mindset is the understanding you're capable of growth, but it's not the growth. Mm-hmm. To grow, you need to take actions. And we realized that you take the habits of mind and apply them through the process of 
practice, stretch and challenge. And you developed what I call an agile learner. And that was my last book or second from last book. And an agile learner is someone who not only understands they're capable of growth, but understands how to go about achieving that growth. So this work was all coming together over, this is the last 15 years of my career I just summarized, but then there was still something missing. Like it wasn't just that you could learn or not learn, that when we looked at students, they had different attitudes towards challenge. Like for example, some students would avoid challenges altogether. Some students would reduce challenges. Some students would do their best, but never want to do better. Some students would take on challenges. Some students would take on challenges because they needed to. They were in the way of getting to their goal. And other students would embrace challenges in the way that JFK talked about challenge. You know, we do these things not because they are easy, but because they are hard. And we realized that there was this, and we did that, or I did that rather, around challenge, around the student's attitude to habits of mind and how they develop those broke it down around how they get information from mistakes and feedback. We could spend a whole episode talking about mistakes. Let's <laughs> might go there later. And also how they distribute their time and energy. And from that, I got these six different types of learners and started to think about, well, how do we teach kids to have a better relationship with challenge? How do we teach kids to go about developing their habits of mind in a more effective way? In short, how do we teach them to be better learners? And so the last 10, 15 years or more of my career have all been focused in one way or another on helping students engage in the learning process more effectively. And I think particularly today when teachers are getting all the teacher quality, teacher standards, and all the blame that goes with that, when all the responsibility is on the teacher's shoulders, all the blame goes with that as well. And we've certainly got a lot of research here in Australia, and I'm sure it applies globally, that teachers are getting, can I say pissed off on the podcast? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but are you finding teachers are getting a bit pissed off that they're, they're being blamed for everything? And this is a recognition that uh, I love a quote by John Holt. He's an American educator you might be familiar with. He might be past now, but he said, and I, I love this, when I heard this, it resonated so strongly with me that learning is not the product of teaching. Learning is the product of the activity of learners. And what he was saying was that we can be the best teachers in the world. You know, we can set appropriately challenging tasks. We can give kids beautifully crafted feedback. But if students don't hold up their end of the bargain, if they don't act on that feedback, if they don't accept the challenge, then no learning will occur. And I think it's a really useful insight to recognize that you can learn without a teacher, right? We, we can all learn without a teacher. We can teach ourselves and do that sort of stuff, but you can't teach without a learner. Yeah. And so my work in the early days, I didn't realize, but that's what I was focusing on. So I was always focusing on the learner side of the equation. And now I've honed that down to be very specific around what does quality learning look like? through these six different levels from non-learner through to what I call an agile learner. And more importantly, what do teachers do in the classroom to help facilitate students becoming better learners? I'm looking at your learnership matrix and I'm thinking about the very bottom level, non-learner. <laughs> if you have a student who is a non-learner, meaning avoids challenges, 
ignorant of habits of mind, ignores mistakes, just not willing to do any part of their job when it comes to learning. As a teacher, you can't just wait until they're ready and wait until they want to learn or suddenly can learn. But where do you start with a student who is a non-learner? Yeah, look, I don't think we've got a lot of true non-learners. Non-learners was my baseline. Mm Non-learners don't participate at all. And I think most students participate to some degree. But the starting point is always with a growth mindset. The... I did, again, a lot of work with the work around mindset, Carol Dweck's work. And what we discovered was that when you look at mindset, someone with a fixed mindset doesn't understand learning. Mm -hmm. They don't see themselves as a learner. So they they give up very quickly. They think challenges are a threat. They think effort is a sign of deficit. They think mistakes are a sign of weakness. And it stops them engaging in the learning process. Someone with a growth mindset understands learning. They know that learning is about creating their abilities. They don't look inside themselves and say, am I a leader? They say, I want to become a leader. Mm -hmm. What do I do to become that leader? So it's a creative process, not a discovery process. And a lot of those kids that we talk about as non-learners, their real issue is that they don't understand learning. So we start with developing a growth mindset. Now that's harder than it looks because Most schools, and we've got the research around this now, that have adopted a growth mindset, what they've done is they've taught about a growth mindset. They've told kids that challenges are good and mistakes are part of learning. And they put up a poster that says, don't say this. I can't do it yet. That's right. (laughs) I can't do it yet. You know what the problem with that is, don't you? The problem with I can't do it yet is that the not yet turns into still not yet. Yeah. Because all we're doing is we're teaching the kids or telling the kids, we're not even teaching them, we're just telling them that they should have a growth mindset. And this idea that you can tell kids about a growth mindset and they will have a growth mindset is flawed in two ways. One, just understanding what the mindset is doesn't change it. Uh, Your mindset is the sum total of a whole lot of messages you've received all through your life. And thinking you can change that by grabbing a poster off Pinterest and putting it on the wall is a bit ridiculous. But secondly, a growth mindset is just the understanding you're capable of growth. It's not growth. It's just an idea that lives in your head. And the idea that lives in your head leads you to take certain actions. And those actions make sense from your point of view. But at the end of the day, it's the actions that lead to growth. So really what we're talking about with this is changing the student's belief. Is that accurate? That's right. And that happens slowly. And that's where my work around the mindset continuum comes in. Because fixed and growth is really useful for understanding the concept, recognizing why it's important but it's not particularly useful in terms of changing students' mindsets. Mindset's not something you have or don't have fixed or on growth. And that was one of the problems. Schools went into the work around mindsets, put the posters up, said not yet, and thought that was going to have an impact on students' mindsets. And at the end of the term, month, year, whatever it was, that kids would have a growth mindset. Of course, they didn't. And teachers just then said, well, that doesn't work very well what's next year's initiative, and it got left behind. When you look at mindset as a continuum, 
what you recognize is that your job as a teacher is not to instill or install or ask students to adopt a growth mindset. Our job is to nudge, to nurture, to nourish, to encourage an increasingly growth orientated mindset. And the way we do that is we fill our environment with growth messages. Now we could talk for another two or three hours about how to do this, but basically what's going on is that as teachers, as adults, as parents, we've grown up with a lot of fixed messages. You know, for example, you said before, Eric, you've got some young kids. How young are your kids? Four and two. Ah, four and two, good ages. <laughs> Do you ever get them to try new stuff? You know, take them off to music classes or to art classes or to little arts and things like that? Yeah, one is very, I guess you could say, growth mindset when it comes to that. And, and one is a challenge to get to yeah. try new things. But yes, always trying. Yeah, I, I, look, I did this with my daughter as well. I would drag her along to try things, art classes, music classes, stuff like that. And she'd be reluctant. She didn't always want to do stuff. And I'd say things to her like, come on, sweetheart, give it a go. You never know. You might be good at it. <laughs> now, can you hear the discovery message in there? It's a test. Yeah. This is a very fixed mindset message I was giving her right from the very beginning that try things, you're either going to be able to do them or not do them. And of course, I made it worse. When she, got a, when she didn't do it well, <clears throat> excuse me, when she didn't do it well, I would say things like, don't worry, sweetheart, you can't be good at everything. And there again is that little promise that maybe there are some things that you are naturally good at. Then I hear parents say things like, you know, James is my artistic one and Melissa is my mathematical one. And we're still trying to work out what Fred's good at. We get all these messages that, you know, right from a very young age, that our abilities are part of who we are. And that builds our fixed mindset views. And then we grow up through school and that gets reinforced. And then we become teachers. And what teachers do is they work from their unconscious bias. And they just, stuff just comes out of your mouth. Like you don't think about everything that comes through your mouth. And so we come into classrooms and we look at, we look at Eric and we go, wow, Eric's really smart. And when he hands his work up to me, I go, Eric, you're capable of doing better. And we give it back to you. But then Melissa hands up her work and we crouch down and we go, that's all right, sweetheart, just hand in what you've done. And we reinforce this idea with the whole praise effort movement. <laughs> we could go for hours here. I worry, I really worry about the number of times praise effort which was well-intended, became praise struggling students mm -hmm. for effort. And when that's what's happened, when you look at Melissa over here and go, oh, keep up the hard work and I want to see you working hard, keep trying, you'll, be, you'll get there, sweetheart, keep going. And you turn to Eric and go, well done, Eric, keep, that, that's exactly right, move on to the next task. You've just told both students that effort makes up for a deficit and push them towards the fixed end of the continuum. We could tell thousands of stories like this, but the strategies I use with the schools I work with are to give teachers little nudges, little reminders that help them reshape the messages, whether it's in their language, whether it's in their assessment strategies, whether it's at a whole school level, that turn their fixed messages into growth messages. So for example, one of the big ones is learning is about creating, not discovering. So learning is a creative process, not a discovery process. So instead of going into a classroom and saying, hang on kids, I'm going to give you a task now. I just want to see who can do this, who can do this. I'm discovering. 
recognizing it's a creative process, we'd say, okay, kids, I've got a task I want to give you. I want to see who's learnt enough to be able to do this at the moment. You know, one of the other ones is about attaching timestamps to performance. Now, how many times have we ask kids to do their best or worst, told them that's your best work, well done. Now, for someone with a fixed mindset, when you hear that's your best work, they go, that's it, that's my ceiling, I've, yeah. I've maxed out. When you say that's my best work to date, this is my best work so far, it becomes a point in time, not a description of the student. Same with struggling. How many kids get described as struggling students or being told that they struggle with maths? Instead, you attach a timestamp, make it about the moment, not about the student. And you say things like, you know, James struggles with maths at the moment, you know, that sort of thing. The uh, message I gave to my daughter, come on, sweetheart, give it a go. You never know, you might be good at it. With that nudge gets transformed into, come on, sweetheart, give it a go. You might enjoy it and decide it's something you want to get good at. Now, when I say, oh, you can't be good at everything, I'd reframe that using that same nudge of learning is about creating, not discovering. And I'd say, you can be good at anything, sweetheart, but it's not free. Growth takes effort and time and resources. Decide if this is something you're prepared to put those resources into. And these nudges, I've got about 30 of them, which all focus on the idea of growth, the idea of building your own backstory. Just reshape the messages we have in the school that help kids understand that they're in charge. And so when you ask me about that kid that's sitting back doing nothing, there are a lot of reasons why that might happen, but oftentimes the reason is that they're not participating because they just don't think they can. They are, I'm just not good at school. If I try, I'm going to fail. Why would I bother trying? It's just going to make me look bad. And every time we recognize that this is a point in time, that this is this type of effort, not just the constipation sort of version of effort that we often advocate, it leads to growth. We don't have them suddenly embracing challenges and loving effort and all the rest of it, but they'll persist a little bit longer. They'll take a bit more of a challenge on and slowly, and this takes time, slowly but surely, we move them along that mindset continuum and start engaging them in the learning process. And that's where you can start then saying, well, all right, now they're off the starting blocks. They're doing something rather than nothing. How do we then get them more effectively engaged in the learning process? Long answer to short question. No, that was great. I'm curious. A, a big question I have, James, is where does our mindset come from thinking about a student? I'm sure it's a sum of their environment, but how often have you seen, because I've seen this a few times, where you have a student with a, a fixed mindset who maybe is a non-learner and it's being reinforced by the parent sitting yeah. right there, well, school's just not his thing. He's never been into school or math just isn't his subject. And it's almost like, how are you going to change that belief in a student if that's what he's heard from a parent every day, his whole career. Do you, do you see that a lot or do the parents have oh, yeah. a lot of influence in? It sounds like you recognize that in your own daughter, right? Just our language, yeah. but working with students, what do you do when you have a parent who's kind of reinforcing that yeah. fixed mindset? Those bloody parents. School would be so much easier without parents, wouldn't it? 
Uh, but seriously, I, I get that question all the time. And the thing you've got to remember is, Eric, do you love your kids? I do. Do you want the best for them? Absolutely. Yeah. So do your parent population. Yeah. You've got to start with that, that when your parent population is saying that, you know, Michael here is, he's my smart one in the family and James is, uh, school's just not his thing. They're doing it out of love. They think that's the right thing to do. And they're doing it because they're trying to protect James from the struggle and don't worry about failure. Don't try those things as you'll fail if you do them. So we'll find the thing that you're good at and all that sort of stuff. They've grown up in the world with a lot of fixed messages. It was probably their parents who treated mm -hmm. them that way as well. And they're getting lots of all this stuff. And um, when I talk to parents about mindset and how it plays out and how they're reinforcing it, I literally get cues of people at the front of the room who say, James, I've, I've always thought I was doing the right thing. I always thought if I tried to identify the type of kid they were when they were young, that would help them in the future. And I say, but what you're doing is you're telling them that's all they can be. You're bringing, creating these boundaries around them that just live in their head. And they say, how do I change that? So the way when I come across parents like that, they need to hear the same sort of messages. They need to understand that, you know, as much as we want to give our students or give our children, I should say, a, a future by saying, oh, you're an artist, so you're going to be this and this, and it feels good for us. We're actually building boundaries around them. We're hindering their growth. We're, even when we tell them they're smart, like there's another really good example mm -hmm. for parents who say that your kids are smart, your kids are smart or high achieving students for, for schools. I mean, how many schools do you work with that uh, talk about their high achieving students? All of them. One of the nudges I use with schools around that is to group students by verbs, not by adjectives. Make it about what they do, not who they are. Oh. And so instead of having high achieving students, you have students who are achieving highly. It's an action, it's something they do. It's not a condition. And it's the same with the parents that when we when i talk to parents and talk about you know, don't call your kids smart but tell them what they did was really clever all right they're not clever their actions were clever when it's about what you do not who you are well i can change my actions but we have inherently a thing i can't change who i am but i can change what i do and that sort of message and there's you know, like i said we do a whole other series of podcasts if you want on the sort of growth mindset messages but to come back to your original question, which was those non-learners, those kids that don't participate, it's likely that the foundational issue is a, a mindset issue. They don't believe they're learners. They, they're setting themselves up to fail as soon as they take action. So why take action? And the solution to that is to help them develop a more growth-orientated mindset. It doesn't happen quickly, it happens slowly, and it happens incrementally. And we do that by countering all the fixed messages that they encounter in their world every day and have all their life with more growth messages. We create a, a culture in the school around growth and learning rather than what we've predominantly got at the moment, which is about teaching and performing. When we encounter that in home environment that's sending lots of fixed messages, we help the parents because the parents are working from a place of love they just don't know that they're unintentionally building these fixed messages and fixed boundaries around their children. And we give them the tools 
to help shift that. Yeah. One one specific question I wanted to ask you from your matrix is about challenges. Looking at your above, your green learners embraces challenge, targets challenges, or attempts them compared to avoids them, reduces them, limits them. I see that a lot with students who are what you would call and shouldn't call high achieving. And sometimes that's a parent directed skill like, oh, well, don't take that hard class or don't try that thing because you might not be good at it. What are some ways that just focusing on the reluctance to take on a challenge that we can help students learn why challenge is so important and why it's worth it? You've honed in on the next step. Like This is the next part. Once kids understand they're capable of learning, they, they need to start taking on challenges. And a lot of kids don't want to do that. The schools I work with, and you know, I work with a lot of schools now, and we've got to help develop the skill of learning over time, like over three or four years. And one of the starting points, there's a few, but one of the starting points around challenge is to understand what we call these zones of learning. Let, let, let's come back a step here. You often see people, when they start a new topic, a new subject, a new area of study, that when you start, it's easy. Like you get the first few steps really straightforward and all that sort of thing. But then you sort of improve for a while and then improvement slows down and then plateaus off. And we reach what Anders Ericsson calls a performance plateau. Mm -hmm. You've seen that? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Perfectly normal part of learning. That area where growth is rapid, where you can do things straightforward, that's what we call our comfort zone. And our comfort zone is full of things we've mastered a long time ago. But it's also full of what I call easy things you haven't done yet. All right, the world is full of things you could do, but mm -hmm. you just never got around to doing. You know, I often give the example with teachers of their 13 times tables. Who knows their 13 times tables? No one, no one. But if I said you need to know them by tomorrow, well, you'd do it. Like you just allocate the time, you'd be a little bit annoyed, but you could just tick <laughs> it off and you, know, you get the job done. That's what I mean by an easy thing you haven't done yet. Your performance zone is your best. That's where you take all your resources and produce your current peak performance. And the thing with those two zones, your comfort zone and your performance zone, is that they come with confidence. They come at reasonably low cost. They don't take you a lot of effort. You get some immediate satisfaction out of it. And you can get it done. You know there's confidence involved but you don't get better by doing your best. You get better by stretching and challenging yourself to go a, a little bit beyond your best in what I call the learning zone. Now you're probably going, cause you're an educator, you're probably going, is that the you know, zone of proximal development? <laughs> yes, it is. That's right. But have you ever seen a child proximately develop? No, no I've seen them learn. So I call it a learning <laughs> zone. I think that makes a whole lot more sense, but it is actually part of the work I do that in any area of expertise, you've got a, a language associated with it. And so one of the things we do when we develop learnership is to develop a language of learning. And so the learning zone, that stretch, that seven out of 10 uncomfortable, that little bit beyond your current best, um, we call the learning zone because it forms part of that language for learning. Now, the challenge with your learning zone is that it feels uncomfortable, not comfortable. There's uncertainty, not certainty. There's you know, discomfort associated with it. There's struggle associated with it. 
Now, if you're a eight-year-old kid and you've got the choice between doing something you can know you can get done, you can tick off and you're confident, or doing the, I'm not sure how to do this thing, this feels uncomfortable, this feels yucky, what are you going to choose? Yeah, that's an easy choice. Why would you take on the challenge? That's right. So one of the first things we do when we're developing learnership is to teach kids to recognize those different zones. Most kids, most adults for that matter, see learning as sort of a homogenous thing. You know, it's all just, I just learn. Like some things are hard, some things are easy, but I don't really understand why. One of the hallmarks of someone who's skillful at anything is they're intentional, they're deliberate about the way they do it. And so when we're developing learnership, we talk about uh, this task that we're doing today is in your comfort zone. You shouldn't make a lot of mistakes. It should feel pretty comfortable. It's just about getting it done, ticking it off. It's just going to take time. This task is about performance. This is going to take concentration. You should be minimizing mistakes. We don't want to see mistakes in your performance zone. This is what I was saying before. We could spend a lot of time talking about mistakes because this whole mistakes are part of learning thing has muddied the water. We'll come back to it perhaps. It should take, in your performance zone, should take focus and effort and concentration. But your learning zone is different. Your learning zone, and it's, this is a big one, we teach kids to recognise it and we say we move in and out of our learning zone. For the next hour and a half, we're going to be in our learning zone. You're expected to feel like you're struggling. You should feel 7 out of 10, not 10 out of 10 uncomfortable. It shouldn't be way out of your depth. It's just that little bit of stretch. You might make mistakes, and the right sort of mistakes can be useful when you're in your learning zone. But the sort of mistakes we make in our comfort zone, forgetting to put a full stop on the end of the sentence, not helpful. And one of the most important things that we talk about when we teach kids about the learning zone is that feeling of struggle passes. You see, coming back to this mindset work, someone with a fixed mindset, they go into their learning zone, they feel that struggle, and they do two things. One, they say, well, I'm always going to feel like that doing this task, so why would I do that? And worse, I think if I struggle with this level, the next level is going to be really bad. The level after that is going to be awful. The level after that's going to be impossible. I'm not going in that direction. And so we teach kids that hard is a relative term. That It's hard until you make it easy. And then the next step is also hard until you make it easy. And the next step is hard. And it doesn't get harder and harder and harder. But so often we reinforce that idea that things get harder when we say things to kids like if you think this is hard wait until next year it's going to be really hard the poor kid's six years old and they're going oh my (laughs) god what's in front of me my life is going to be terrible yeah hard easy hard easy that effort is the cost of growth right we can do low effort and do more but it's the investment in our learning zone that leads to growth and the, the trouble is when you don't understand that when you don't understand what it feels like what the expectations are when you're meant to be in each of those different zones is that you tend to get busy in your comfort and performance Mm -hmm. zones rather than getting better yeah and the real challenge underneath that which is something i work a lot with the schools is that most adults we push kids we make them learn and do all that sort of stuff and then we go through university in the first years of our career most adults get to a point in their career early on where they're pretty good and where they spent 25, 35 years getting better, 
they stop. Yeah. And they spend the rest of their lives getting busy. And the teachers that are in front of our kids have often spent 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, some of them, in their comfort and performance zones. And they've actually forgotten what it's like to be in their learning zones. And as one principal I was working with recently, very aptly put it, she said that the I do, we do, you do model for teaching when it comes to teaching learning is limited by the I do part. And part of the work I do is to help teachers understand and remember what skillful learning is like, because coming back to the start, we've got skillful teachers, like with teachers are really skilled at the craft of teaching but many of them don't understand the skill of learning. So the, the resources that I develop aren't, aren't just for students. They're to teach teachers what the skill of learning is all about. Yeah, no wonder when we talked at the start of the conversation, James, about hanging posters and teaching vocabulary didn't change student growth mindsets, but also if you have a, a, a teacher in the classroom who's not modeling that, um, and there are some teachers, I, I think like Todd Whitaker, he says they didn't teach for 25 years. They taught the same year, 25 times. <laughs> and there's this belief that I got my degree and I got my job and I'm done. I made it. I arrived. And it, I wanted to ask you, how much of this do you think can be modeled by teachers and sharing examples of how they're going through those same challenges and rewards that students are in the learning process, even though they're the teacher. Yeah, all of it. Look, in the work that I do, you were talking before, and we'll drop the book now. Uh, I'm, I'm writing a book at the moment for school leaders, and it's about learnership, and it's about how we develop learnership in our students. But it's more about how you lead that work in your school. And a big part of that is how you get teachers on board how you help them understand that it's not just their teaching practice that despite what some authorities are saying, we make teachers make the difference. You know, John had his, I'm diverging now. John had his 30%, you know, John had, actually says that 50% of the difference between one student's outcome and the next is down to what the student does. And yet we've focused on the 30% that what teachers do and mm -hmm. come back to the question you asked. So it's a lot about getting teachers on board, helping them understand the learning process. And as a leader, developing a culture in your school and shifting the culture that we've got at the moment in most schools, and obviously I don't know your specific school, the listener school, but in most schools, the culture in education at the moment is about teaching and it's about performance. It's about teachers do it. So when you say culture is about the way things are done around here, well, they're done by teachers. Mm -hmm. Teachers are in charge of the process. Teachers cha uh, guide the learning process. Teachers you know, do it. There's all the pressure and all the blame that comes along with it. And it's about performance, measuring where you're up to and all the rest of it. And I talk about how to shift that culture to being a culture of learning and a culture of growth. So instead of performance and teaching, it's about learning and growth. And a big part of that is to recognize that what we want to establish is a community of learners. At the moment, we've got a community of teachers and students who are acted upon. And so we need to develop a community of learners. And so we look just not at just what's happening in the classroom, but also what's happening in the broader school environment. You know, a lot of things that we do in schools these days 
actually foster a fixed mindset and keep, keep teachers in a performance zone. You know, one example that I often come back to, I'm sure I don't know the name of the process that you use, but I'm sure in different states, you all have a, a meeting probably once a year, maybe once every two years, where you sit down with your principal or your, what do you call your district person? Superintendent, thank mm -hmm. you. And basically say, I'm still a good teacher. And they say, well, great, you're still a good teacher. How are you going to be a better teacher next year? And you set some goals. You've you're got a process like that? Yeah, like a teacher evaluation system. Yep, that, yeah. that's the one. Yeah. Well, it's called different things in different yeah. states and different countries, but we've all got that, set, which is fundamentally a good thing. Like we should be doing that. The problem with that process, the way it's often implemented, is that the teacher knows they're going to be sitting down with that same person next year and they're going to ask the question, have you reached your goals? And so what we invariably do is we set goals that we know we can achieve. And what we do is we set goals that are actually in our comfort and performance zones. Mm -hmm. There's no reward at the end of the day when you get back to the next year's um, task, uh, the next year's review, and sit down with that person and say, oh, look, I set this really audacious goal. I really wanted to improve my performance. I tried this. It didn't work, but I learned a lot from that experience. And I tried that and it didn't work. And, and the person sitting there with their clipboard or their spreadsheet or their iPad, and they go, well, so you didn't achieve your goal then? So there's no reward for the struggle. There's no reward for the putting that in. It's the, the reward is for the completion, for getting it done. And so we tend to set easy goals, which tend to keep us in our performance zones. And that's just one example of the sort of things that can reinforce this performance culture rather than a growth and learning culture. Well, it sounds a lot like the mixed message we send students with grades. And then mm -hmm. here we have with teachers and their scores and marks and goals and are you proficient or not? No wonder that extrinsic reward is lost if you set your sights too high and you don't choose a, a goal that can keep you in your comfort zone. Yeah. We can have another two or three episodes on assessment and how that sends fixed <laughs> messages and how to change that. It's <laughs> yeah. a whole other thing. Yeah. Jethro and I have talked a lot about that among other people. It's a very passionate topic in our country with evaluations and what those should look like. Well, in the book, Learnership for Leaders, James, tell the listeners, when, when are you planning on? Look, it should be on the shelves around June, July. I say should because I've made two commitments to myself. One is that this is in my learning zone. <laughs> and one of the things about your learning zone is that we're typically pretty bad at judging the resources that are required when we're there. We lack what we call motivation calibration. That's another conversation to get better at that. But so it sometimes takes a bit longer, sometimes a bit shorter. So, but I've Got most of the words on the page at the moment and we're in the editing process so should be good the second thing i promised myself is that it's going to be a bloody good book and if it's not i'm not going to put it out there until it is so fingers crossed um, and a commitment made to get it out there in june july and it will be available you know amazon all those places but also at jamesanderson.com.au all over my website and places like that yeah, perfect. And we'll have a link to your website for listeners to reach out and also find some more resources or check out the book. Well, James, our wrap-up question on the show always is, what can principals do this week to be a more transformative leader like you? Yeah. The take-home I'd give you is to walk through your schools and start to raise the status of learning 
in your school from an act to an art. Get used to looking at how students are engaging in the learning process and recognize it as a thing of beauty. I'd love to walk around schools where learnership has been the focus and everyone understands what skillful learning looks like. Everyone's doing their part to help students become more skillful learners. And you walk into a classroom and you observe a student in the process of learning. And as a leader, you're able to look at them and go, that's beautiful. The way that child is learning today is a thing of beauty. In the same way as we look at anything that's done as a high level, as a thing of beauty, mm. that we recognize the way they learn as awesome. Well, I like it. I've never thought about those thoughts when you see student learning and reminding yourself how beautiful the thing that is. But there's easy ways to see that for sure as you walk the halls and stop by classrooms. So, well, great, James. Really appreciated having you on the show. Thanks again for making the time zones work and being able to share your knowledge of learning with me and the listeners. Real pleasure, Eric. Thanks for having me on. Edited by Gage Sanderson.